Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 19th, 2022. It's a Friday. It's lunchtime uh, on the West Coast. We're having a, a justice day, a day perhaps appropriate for Friday about how to change the world. We began historically. Uh, we did a show earlier today about the French Revolution, uh, the storming of the Bastille in the name of justice, political reform, external reform, I think, in terms of justice, of making government more democratic, more fair, more just. Did a conversation with the historian Laura Mason, who has a new book out, The Last Revolutionaries. Um, and now we're coming up to date. And perhaps rather than dealing with external revolution, we're dealing with both institutional and internal revolution. Uh, my guest today is Jessica Nordell. She had a book out last year, uh, the End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Bias. Uh, it's been acclaimed. It's being listed in all sorts of awards. It's just out in paperback. And interestingly enough, it comes with a slightly different subtitle, How We Eliminate Unconscious Bias and Create a More Just World, which is very much in keeping with our justice theme on a Friday. Um, and Jessica, I'm thrilled, is joining us from... Minnesota uh, today from Minneapolis in Minnesota. Uh, Jessica said to me before we went live that I could make as many biased jokes as I like, but I'm not going to because I think that will undermine the seriousness of the show. Jessica, in all seriousness, is this the revolution of our age, overcoming bias, both externally in terms of institutions, but particularly internally in terms of how we deal with other people of different genders, ages, sexes, sexualities? Yeah, you know, I think when we think about bias and prejudice, we often think about the kind of egregious kind of headline grabbing instances of, you know, white supremacy, white nationalism, you know, egregious forms of sexism and misogyny. Um, these are, you know, events that capture a lot of attention, but there's also what I think of as like the second layer of bias, which is more subtle, uh, more sort of pervasive, and maybe more insidious because it's harder to see, it's harder to really grasp. Um, and this is bias that we might that we call unconscious or implicit bias. Uh, I've come to think of it as unexamined bias because there's some debate in the in the research community about the extent to which it actually is fully unconscious. It may be a combination of conscious and unconscious, but it's unexamined. And it's a huge problem because we see it everywhere, you know, even among people who want to do the right thing, who want to help others, who, who believe themselves to be egalitarian. Um, all of them, all of us, I should say, are susceptible to behaving in ways that are influenced by stereotypes and inherited beliefs and associations that then cause us to behave in ways that really conflict with our values and cause tremendous harm to others. I mean, it interferes with healthcare, with education, with work, with people's ability to do their jobs. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a really serious problem that we need to contend with if we want to have a you know a true pluralistic democracy. 
Yeah, and it is indeed everywhere. As you say, it's partly hidden, but partly journalists like yourself and researchers are revealing it. I went to the Times website today and I found a piece about a home which was appraised with a black owner for $472,000 and with a white owner almost double, $750,000. Coming back to this idea of implicit and explicit, I'm not sure how familiar you are with this particular case of of, Absolutely. Of, of black uh, homeowners whose homes were appraised lower uh, as blacks versus whites. But yeah. how conscious is this? Are, are these machine appraisals? Are these human appraisals? What's actually happening here? I'm really glad you brought up that story. I think it's a really, I am familiar with the story and with some of the problems in the home appraisal industry. You know, we think of housing discrimination um in terms of redlining, you know, we know about the history of redlining, um, of maybe, maybe some people are familiar with contract buying, which um, Beryl Satter talks about in her book, Family Properties, about the way that Black families were forced into really unfavorable home purchase decisions because, or home purchase contracts, because they weren't, um, they weren't able to get mortgages that were federally um, <coughs> guaranteed. But the, the, the bias in home appraisal is something that I think people Many of us are not familiar with, and so the, the story that you're that you're bringing up is a really important example. This is a family that had an appraiser, just an individual person, look at their home and appraise it based on all the criteria that are used in home appraisals, and then the family removed all evidence. They thought the appraisal value seemed low, as far as I understand. They had. Uh, a white friend stand in for them. They had a different appraiser come. They removed all evidence that a black family lived there. They took down pictures. I think they took down things like posters and books that might suggest that a black family lived there. And the appraised value was almost double, you know, as you point out. Um, this wasn't an algorithm. This was a person who made... Right. So does this reflect just implicit or explicit bias in terms of the appraiser? Or does it reflect, perhaps more troublingly in a way, um, the idea that houses are worth more in terms of resale if they're owned by whites versus blacks? You know, what was interesting about this story, as far as I understand it, is that this family, you know, th there's been some, well, let me... <laughs> This is a complicated question. I would say it's probably a combination of what you're describing. Um, and one of the challenges with bias is that it can be hard to tease apart what is going on exactly. Only the person who's making the decision truly knows what's happening in their own mind. Um, but what's interesting about this story is that while you know there, there is research that shows that if a home is in a majority black neighborhood, its appraised value is less than if that equivalent home was in a different neighborhood. This is a home that was in, as far as I understand, a majority white neighborhood. You know, So in that case, it was really the identification, some kind of, you know, some sort of set of stereotypes and assumptions, beliefs, you know, that might've been some amount conscious, some amount unconscious, um, that led to this devaluation. You know, that's what bias is really often about, a devaluation of the, you know, the um, property of this family. Uh, Jessica, you 
mentioned earlier that this was a human valuation rather than an algorithmic one. We've done a number of shows on whether or not AI can solve the problem of bias, of diversity. One with a, a Bima uh, Amanath, who works at uh, Deloitte. There's also been a lot of work on the biases of the algorithm. What's your view on how the algorithm can help or hinder bias? It's a good question. You know, all of the biases that humans are susceptible to expressing can be expressed algorithmically as well. So there's a huge risk in using algorithms to make decisions that affect people's lives, people's careers, you know, people's um, livelihoods. That said, there are some examples that I uncovered in my research of algorithms that did reduce bias. And I'll give you one example. Um, there was a group of trauma surgeons at Johns Hopkins Hospital who were very concerned because patients were not receiving adequate blood clot prevention. And, you know, as viewers may know, blood clots are incredibly dangerous. They can have life or death consequences. It's really important to get appropriate blood clot prevention, um, particularly if you're in the hospital undergoing surgery. So what these researchers did was develop a computerized checklist that took doctors through a set of a systematic set of questions um, that they used to evaluate whether a patient should get blood clot prevention treatment or not. And then an algorithm used that those inputs to, to spit out an answer. Yes, no, should they get blood thinner? Should they get squeezy boots to promote circulation? And what was really interesting was, first of all, the computerized checklist worked as intended. It increased the likelihood that patients were getting appropriate blood clot prevention. Having doctors use this systematic set of questions and this checklist to make their decision. But it also did something else. Later, when the researchers reanalyzed the data, they noticed that women were receiving, before this checklist, much worse blood clot prevention treatment than men. They were getting appropriate treatment at a much lower level. After this algorithmic intervention, the disparity disappeared. And women and men both got very high levels of appropriate treatment. So that's an example of an algorithm that was used to decrease disparities. Um, so I think it's not you know, a yes or no answer. I think it, it, it's complicated. They can, they can be useful, but we have to be very careful because they can also be susceptible to bias. Jessica, in the book, as well as in a number of, of articles, you talk about bias, uh, gender bias, racial bias in healthcare. You had an interesting piece from 2017 in the New York Times. Um, you talk about how some different people get differently, different, danger, what you call dangerously different medical care. This was a Guardian piece from last year. Uh, we've done a number of shows on the future of, of medicine. Uh, did one, for example, with a German writer, Harold Schmidt, last month, talking about the end of medicine. He has a new book out, um, The End of Medicine, in terms of taking the doctors out and replacing it with the algorithm. Um, how central do you think the medical industry is in our crisis of bias and in our challenge to end it? You, you seem to, as I said, both in your your articles and in the book, you, you make it a very important piece of this puzzle. You know, bias exists in 
just about every realm of human endeavor. We have stacks of studies that show it is pervasive. I think one of the reasons it's so troubling in healthcare um, is that it has such serious consequences. One of the stories I tell um, in the book is of a friend of mine who was experiencing serious symptoms, went to a doctor, uh, was told that she was probably just tired and stressed and she should rest and get more sleep. And she ultimately um, didn't get better. She kept getting worse, but kept getting kind of batted away by doctors. And ultimately uh, was diagnosed much too late with stage four cancer. And in this case, um, my friend unfortunately didn't make it. She, she died of her disease. And th the doctor who finally diagnosed her said he had seen many women in particular in his career come to him with very late stages of a disease um, progression because they hadn't been taken seriously by their doctors. And so that's just one example. You know, we see um, bias in healthcare uh, regarding black patients, Latino patients, um, heavier patients, uh, people from a lot of different backgrounds are experiencing disparate care just because of something about their social identity and, and the consequences can be really severe. Well, Jessica, you talk a lot about the scientific research of one kind or another, and you use that to support your work. But I wonder if science is also a form of bias. Uh, you wrote an interesting piece in The Atlantic about how math is personal. Um, we did a show with the math writer James Zingring on how math often distorts our thinking. Is science the fix or the problem, or is that, again, a, a, the wrong way of thinking about this? I mean, certainly, you know, science isn't doesn't provide all the answers. Um, but do, know, don't scientists come to all this one way or the other with a certain scientific bias, if you like? I mean, yes, scientists certainly come with their own biases. I mean, when I was looking into the history of prejudice research, because I, I wanted to understand how our, our ideas about bias and prejudice have evolved over time, when I looked at the history, um, you know, I found that it wasn't until the 1920s or 1930s that prejudice was even recognized in the psychology community as something to study. Um, up until then, ideas that we think of as prejudiced were seen as correct. They were just seen as true. You know, like in the 19th century, um, social scientists put a lot of effort and, and research um, resources and mental resources into doing things like proving the superiority of the white race. Uh, so this is, you know, this was the scientific community that was carrying out research that was infused by, infused with the biases and prejudices of the time. And I think it would be um, absurd to think that we somehow have evolved beyond, you know, biases and prejudices. I, scientists today absolutely bring those to, um, to, to their work. Uh, I, I'm thinking of the, the field of ecology, which for most of the 20th century was dominated by the idea that species are in competition with one another. You know, that, um, that this is just a sort of a, a red and tooth and claw world where species are vying for limited resources and we are fundamentally, you know, uh, at each other's throats in competition. It wasn't until later that 
scientists started to understand the way that cooperation and mutually beneficial relationships play an enormous role in nature. You know, forests and fungi, uh, flowers and pollinators, like most species on earth engage in some kind of cooperation. But scientists weren't able to see that because they were limited to the conceptual framework within which they operated, which was a highly competitive milieu, you know, a highly competitive scientific milieu. So absolutely, I mean, even scientists, even, you know, the, ha the hallowed scientists who we look to um, for kind of a, a, a rational, objective understanding of the world are, are absolutely influenced, you know, by the culture that they live in. Jessica, some people are going to be watching this. They might not actually admit it, but they'll be thinking to themselves, well, there's always going to be bias, so I'm not too bothered. And what one person's just injustice is another person's justice. But you're, my guess, my sense is that you're not just making the justice argument. Your argument is rooted in utility. Um, you write a lot about how um, sexism results in some women not getting that promotion. Um, and you've written extensively about how, and you, here on your Twitter page, you're promoting other people's pieces about how women are discriminated against in the workplace. My sense, though, is your argument is a utilitarian one. You suggest that society generally is harmed when we have bias in the workplace against women in particular, because the quality doesn't rise to the top and ultimately we're all poorer for it. Is that fair? Absolutely. You know, I when organizations are extremely homogenous, we see consequences of that homogeneity. You know, in the early days of computing, there was a computer scientist named Melvin Conway um, who uh, coined the term, um, or he his his idea came to be known as Conway's Law. He he noticed that software always reflects some element of the of the team that created it. So, like if a if a, a software team has, if there are four different teams working on a piece of software, the software will often have four different parts. You sort of can't disentangle the creators of a product with what they actually create. And I think, you know, we see that across society now, you know, some of the, the biggest products and companies that have been created um, suffer from the limitations of the homogeneity of the founding members. Um, and so, yes, I think it benefits us all to have a, a wide variety of perspectives um, coming together to to solve scientific problems, to to create new products and services, to to build companies, um, because different perspectives bring really important different information that uh, you know that we all need to to benefit from. So yeah, I mean, there's certainly a justice angle, there's a utility angle, and I honestly think there's like a, you know, a personal growth angle as well. These are all really important elements. Um, my ability to form meaningful relationships with you uh, depends in part on my ability to overcome the biases I might be bringing to our connection to one another. So all of these, I think, are important reasons that, that we should be invested in this. Jessica, you're on the front lines of this. You make a living in some ways writing about it. I, I wonder whether sometimes the new orthodoxy on this stuff gets on your nerves. Uh, there was a piece in the World Economic Forum which seems to capture the certain sorts of biases, white male bias more than any others, about 
ending unconscious gender bias. It refers, I think, to you. Um, Starbucks, which has always been a place that supposedly supports um, uh, uh, heterogeneity in every sense. Uh, you write about how it doesn't really understand the science of racial bias. Is there a lot of hypocrisy these days that everyone's talking about this stuff? No, no one's ever going to, no one's going to ever, I, I found a piece online saying in defense of bias, but no one's actually ever going to publicly, certainly anyone in a corporation, defend bias. And yet, whilst it's become an orthodoxy, most people really aren't doing very much a, about it. And because it's so complicated and it's so hard to measure and it's so controversial, ultimately it just becomes another thing we talk about all the time. Mm. Yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly a risk of that. I, I saw a statistic not that long ago that after the murder of George Floyd here in Minneapolis, companies pledged something like $60 billion um, to the cause of you know equity in the workplace, equality and diversity in the workplace. And this was a recent statistic. And I think you know only 1% of that has actually been dispersed. So we do see a, uh, a discrepancy between sometimes the rhetoric around these issues and the actual commitment. You know, uh, the sort of diversity training approach is one. one yeah, what do you, I know you've written about that and uh, uh, in, a, in a New Republic uh, piece and you're slightly skeptical about workshops in terms of eliminating all this stuff. Yeah, you know, one of the one of the things that I was really curious about and looking into, because I'm, you know, I'm I'm a journalist. I have a, you know, my background is in physics. I'm I'm kind of a geek and a skeptic, and so I was really curious to know what the data shows, what the data suggests about whether these approaches are actually having an effect, what effect they're having, and is the effect going in the direction that we want? Um, and so when I looked at diversity trainings, one of the things that was alarming to me was that many of these trainings are not evaluated. So there are, you know, workshops and trainings that are kind of being rolled out across most organizations without really a rigorous framework for evaluating whether they are accomplishing the goals or even a determination of what those goals actually are. You know, in order to evaluate whether something is working, you have to first figure out well what are the specific measures that we're looking at that we want that we, and, that we, and we want to see if we're actually you know approaching those goals. And so, one of the challenges with diversity training is it's rarely evaluated. Um, another is that it has in in some cases it, it seems to possibly provoke backlash, particularly if it's a mandatory training. Um, there were a couple of sociologists who looked at a few decades of diversity programs and their and their impact in organizations and found that manda after mandatory diversity trainings, the number of women and people of color in management positions actually decreased. And their hypothesis is that there's kind of a, a backlash that managers um, that, that happens when managers feel that their autonomy is being undermined. They feel like they're being forced to do something against their will. They kind of like rebel against it. So yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, 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 I, I you know, it, it's hard to say that there's one panacea. The good news is I found in the research for my book, I found a lot of approaches that actually do show measurable change. 
So right, I did- so let, let's let, let's spend the rest of the conversation talking about that. We did a show a couple of years ago with the Californian filmmaker Robin Hauser on the very subject we're talking about, how to address bias. You've pointed to all the problems and the contradictions and the injustices. And you've also suggested that not all the, the fixes, particularly mandatory training, probably work. What can be done? Uh, how would you begin, Jessica, realistically, given uh, the limits of resources and time that we all have? You know, one thing that I am, am have become very convinced is is effective is developing meaningful relationships across social differences. And particularly when that relationship has a certain form, and I'll explain what I mean. Um, in the 1950s, there was a psychologist named Gordon Alport who developed an idea known as the contact hypothesis. And Alport's proposal was that maybe if you brought people together across differences at equal status and they worked collaboratively on a shared goal, maybe this could have an effect on stereotyping and prejudice. And over the decades, we've seen kind of anecdotally cases where that has happened. Um, when the army, when the U.S. Army integrated, for instance, you saw attitudes and relationships, particularly attitudes of white officers toward their black counterparts, completely change after working collaboratively equal status on a shared goal. Um, and more recently, there's been some really interesting research that sh- has shown that sports can also be an instance of this. So there was an amazing study in India that looked at cricket players, and it the in the study um, the researchers assigned men of different castes in India to either being on the same cricket team or being on a, a team with only men of their own caste, and what they found was that this contact hypothesis framework of equal status, collaborative, shared goals changed the attitudes and the behavior of these men toward men of other castes. So the way that I think that, you know, can play out in our own lives is if you have the opportunity, you know, if if you're interested in tackling your own inherited beliefs and stereotypes and assumptions, if you have the opportunity to form a connection, a collaborative connection with someone from a different group and work on a shared goal, this can be an extremely powerful approach. And I would love to see if there's a way to sort of, you know, do this at scale. 